Hi, and welcome to the Speech Uncensored podcast. I am Leanne Porter, your host. I am a medical speech and language pathologist interested in learning more about our vast scope of practice and sharing all that I find with you. This podcast was created to foster interest and engagement in the areas that sometimes get overlooked in our practice, and today's topic is no exception. Dr. Susan Fager from the Institute for Rehabilitation Science and Engineering at Madonna Rehabilitation Hospital in Lincoln, Nebraska, is here to share her droplets of wisdom on the topic of access technology for AAC and adults. I'm excited to hear from Susan today uh, because even though she does um, quite a lot of work on the research side, she still goes over into Madonna Hospital to work with her SLP colleagues on problem solving and generating unique solutions um, to empower their patients with uh, physical limitations to connect with their AAC technologies to to have a voice, to be able to communicate, to get their, their message across and their thoughts out. So um, Susan is going to kind of guide us through the type of work that she does and what she specializes in and give us a case study on a multi-input access that she worked on. And so like, okay, like this is all foreign to me. I don't know what I'm talking about. So let me turn it over to Susan and let our very special knowledgeable guest take it away. All right. Well, welcome to another episode of the Speech Uncensored podcast. I'm Leanne, and I'm sitting down with Dr. Susan Cook-Fager to talk about access technologies for adults with complex communication and access needs for augmentative and alternative communication. Whew. Okay. (laughs) It is. I had to write that down. (laughs) I'm impressed. You got it all out flawlessly. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Not at the very beginning. There was a little hiccup there, but we won't talk about that any more than me pointed it out. Okay, well, now it's on to you. It's your turn to talk. <laughs> well, I can tell you a little bit um, about myself. I work at uh, Madonna Rehab Hospital. I'm based in Lincoln, Nebraska, so in the, in the Midwest here. And I've been at this uh, hospital for working for 20 years now. And I started here in 98 as a clinician. Um, focusing on AAC. When I came uh, to the hospital, we had one person doing AAC and it was me. And then I mm-hmm. also had a uh, full-time regular uh, clinical caseload, non-AAC caseload. And so AAC was sort of like fit in <laughs> when mm-hmm. I could do it and, and um, sort of extra. But as that program ended up growing, um, I started to be able to focus on AAC more and more, uh, which I really liked because I've always had a strong interest in technology And I really love working with, um, you know, the whole range of populations you get to work with in AAC. So I work with kids to adults, developmental disabilities to acquired injuries. Um, As I started working, and you may know this name, Dr. David Buechelman, he's at uh, the, he was at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. He was a teacher of mine. Um, in school and he came over here and he likes to do research in the hospital and so I was able to get engaged in a little bit of research as a clinician which I thought was I never thought when I graduated I would ever want to do research but it was so applicable what he did and we were working directly with patients and um, so I really enjoyed it and as time went on I had the opportunity to go back to school and get my PhD 
in AEC and motor speech disorders, I kind of started to focus more on adults with acquired injuries. So I did that and I worked and that was a really busy time in my life. And then when I graduated, I had the opportunity to become a full-time researcher here at Madonna. Uh, Madonna Rehab Hospital really embraced the idea of having a clinical research program, kind of developed a wing for us. And um, we have a handful of researchers. I do uh, augmentative and alternative communication and motor speech disorders where some of my research focuses and then we have other like uh, PT researchers that look at gait and movement analysis and we have a rehab engineer um, who does rehab engineering um, so that's kind of it's kind of an unusual path I love what I'm doing because I'm still working with patients every week I still get to work really closely with the great clinical staff here so it's a really nice blend of research and clinical work. And it's kind of unusual. I know there aren't a lot of these types of positions out there. So I feel really fortunate to be working in this field. So that's kind of my background in a nutshell and sort of how I got here, just stumbled upon some great opportunities. Nice. Excellent. Yeah. Seems like a little mix of kind of being in the right place and working for an organization that wanted to have that bridge with research and application yes. to the field. So yep, absolutely. That's, that's excellent. Yeah. All right. Um, and within AAC, you have tended to specialize in access to it. So people yeah. who really struggle with the motor skills yep. to use devices. So can you tell me a little bit more about that? Sure. Yes. And, and I can tell you that, that my research focus has really been driven by the needs that I see. So we tend to at our hospital, because we're a regional provider, we're an independent um, freestanding rehab hospital, so we, we, we get patients from all over, we tend to get the most severe patients that people don't quite know what to do with. <laughs> and so that has really driven my research directions because then I've had to interface with these folks that are so severely impaired with very minimal to almost non-existent movements. And we've had to try to come up with ways to help them communicate, help to develop some of their physical capabilities so they can access technology. It's been, I've been able to see firsthand the challenges and also how to more thoughtfully approach these cases so we can get better outcomes from a communication perspective from them. So that's where my work is that's the reason my work is focused a bit more on access. Now I know that uh, speech pathologists, you know, we don't really get specific training in school on access. Um, and sometimes we don't get any training at all in AEC. Unfortunately, not all programs have that. Um, so it's definitely a unique area, but it's definitely an area I see a role, a real important role that we bring um, into it because we have such great background and knowledge of individuals' cognitive processing capabilities and their language capabilities. And you you need to have that understanding in order to come up with good functional access methods that aren't too cognitively demanding or that um, can allow you to more fully understand what their cognitive and language capabilities are because you need to tap into a way for them to communicate so you can figure that out. So um, that's kind of where my research focus has come from. Um, like I said, just basically the patients that we're working with. And what are some different types of access methods that you've utilized with patients in your work? Yeah, so access, so what I mean by access is just how a person interfaces with technology or controls that technology. 
And there's just a number of ways you can do that. One is the way you and I are doing it right now with our keyboards and our mouse. That's our access method to our computers. And some people can use those devices just in a modified form. Um, Touchscreen is an access method using um, tools to help you use a touchscreen as an access method. But then when we look more, what I focus more on and what we tend to see in the field of AAC are alternative access methods. So if you can't use a standard mouse, you can't use a standard keyboard, then how do we get it? What do we do so that you can actually use a computer? And so we do a lot of things like switch scanning, where you might have this button switch. And when you click the button, it sends a signal to the software program to start highlighting items in your communication display. And there are different arrays for that. There's row column scanning where it scans the row of a grid display. You hit your switch when you get to the right row and then it scans each column. You get to your target item, you hit your switch and there's your selection. Um, and there are different configurations of that. So that's kind of just the basic example of switch input. And then, so that's considered sort of like an indirect access method. And then there are more, oh, did you have a question? I did. You are awesome. Thanks for pausing. You're so responsive. Thank you. <laughs> so the with the switch scanning method, that's, I think, where you guys can get pretty creative on figuring out loads of different methods for people to use yes. with that method. So just off the top of your head, could you name a couple? Yeah. So um, some different ways you can configure creative ways you can use uh, switch scanning and one that I like to use a lot is if a person has more than one physical movement capability it gives them a lot more control so the first example I gave you was that row column scanning and it just automatically scans and so you have to anticipate where your target's going to be and you have to have pretty good motor planning and execution because you have to hit your button at the right time. Now, if you have... And how how would you be hitting that button? Um, you might hit it with your... So whatever physical movement you might have, if it might be a, a twitch of your thumb or a movement of your head um, any or a muscle movement using um, EMG, those are all examples of, of a, a switch activation. Now, if a person has more than one movement, so they could maybe use, let's do, use an easy example, say they can move each thumb on each hand, and so we can put a button under each thumb, then they could use those two movements to um, first click through the rows that they want and then make the selection with their other, other button. So they can use both those movements, and then the, the timing aspect is out of the way. So they can go as fast as they want. They can go as slow as they want. They don't have to worry about missing their target as it's scanning, those kinds of things. So on the software side, those are some things you can tweak. Um, as, as you, When you ask me about what sort of movement you would use or what sort of switches you would use, there are so many different switches out there now and they've developed, they just continue to develop new ones um, all the way from just very light touch. So if you just have a teeny little twitch, we can capture that with a switch. Um, if you have a little, we're working on an EMG switch. So if you just have a little bit of a muscle movement, maybe a twitch in your face or um, a little bit of a twitch you can control in your arm, we can capture that. Um, all the way to maybe people have excess movements. And so you need a, a switch that um, isn't going to break <laughs> when they hit it. Maybe someone who has severe uh, spastic CP. So you, you can have these um, 
padded buttons that they can hit without breaking, but they're durable enough and they can use that as an access method. So there's just, and there's proximity switches where you don't have to touch it. You just get near it. Um, just all sorts of, it's a pretty creative field. And um, a lot of your vendors, uh, local vendors that you talk to, or if you happen to ever go to, um, you know, professional conferences like the Assistive Technology Industry Association, that's a great one, where every switch device, AAC device manufacturer practically is there. Spend a day in their vendor hall and just learn about all those different options that are out there. Um, so yeah, so that, that's kind of some of the access tools for scanning. And then I'm, I'm going to shift just a little bit, if that's okay, to talk about um, uh, alternative direct access methods, which is where I think our field has grown the most in the past 10 years. And that's with head tracking and eye tracking, which I think most people have heard about eye tracking. It's, it's, it's a pretty commonplace access method, but head tracking is another one that people don't always think of where you put a reflective dot on your forehead and there's a little camera device that can attach to your computer that picks up the reflection from that dot and that translates that into cursor control. And so then the person can move their head and control their cursor on their computer screen and access software that way. Or eye tracking where there's a camera that's um, attached to your computer and it uses, it bathes your face in infrared light and it looks for the glint in your your eyeball. And then it can does some mathematical calculations and it can tell where you're looking on the screen. So basically your eye movement translates into cursor control. So those are the the eye tracking in particular, one of the, probably it's just opened the doors to so many people. It, it was developed and became a fundable piece of equipment in the time frame that I've been working here. And it's been amazing. When I started here, that wasn't available. So I'd work with people with, you know, diseases such as ALS. And so they get to a point where they just really had no access um, to a computer anymore. And so many of them would spend the end stages of their disease process with no way to communicate other than low tech communication. But with eye tracking, now I see many people still continue to use their computers up until death. And so they mm -hmm. still have that independent mode of communication. So it's a really powerful tool. And we're so fortunate that it's been able to get funded and, and recognized as a medically necessary device for these people. So that's been a great thing to see in this last couple decades. And when you say it, it's now a source that can be funded, yeah. you're referring to insurance companies yeah. covering it and providing it for patients now as part of their medical care. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So it's recognized as a, a fundable accessory, especially for certain diagnoses. And um, these are expensive devices. <laughs> and so it's great to be able to get them funded. Really about cost the same as a wheelchair. But um, yeah, so we've been fortunate and um, we, our group, a little bit of what we've done in the past is um, not only are we involved in some technology development on the research end, as we talk about this, this reminds me, my mentor, uh, Dave Buchelman, and, some, and myself and some of the other speech pathologists that have worked with him over the years have really looked at trying to always capture data on how people are using technology and trying to publish that and put it in book chapters and making sure that people are really aware that this is um, really functional technology for people. They're using it well with, you know, well into their illness that, it, you know, the important functions that it covers for these individuals and um, so we you know part of our research 
you know, that maybe isn't as exciting as developing new technology. It's kind of what we call putting the bucket under the clinical process and making sure that we're capturing um, the outcomes of technology. Mm -hmm. Um, So that way we can continue to show support for why these need to be funded um, for individuals and then let other uh, therapists that are new to the field understand, you know, how people are using this technology and how it helps them. Excellent. Very good. All right. And did you have any um, kind of case studies or stories to illustrate some of yeah. these points and yes. that you wanted to go over? Yeah. So what, I, what I'm what i going to do first, I'm going to deviate a little bit before I go into the case studies, um, because a lot of the things I wanted to, that I'm talking about are related directly to work I'm doing with a research group called uh, the RERC on AAC. So RERC stands for Rehab Engineering Research Center. And it's funded through a uh, federal funding agency called NIDLER, which stands for National Institute on Disability Independent Living and Rehabilitation Research. (laughs) And NIDLER is a really interesting um, group in that they really tend to fund what I consider really clinically applicable research. So they fund the model systems, the TBI model systems, spinal cord model systems, and then they fund a a series of rehab engineering research centers, and they're all in different areas. So there might be one in wheeled mobility, there might be one in in rec tech, there was one in in wireless communications. We happen to be in a funded center in augmentative and alternative communication. So um, so this is a group we are in our last year of funding for this um, particular round. And we are kind of unusual because AAC is a pretty small field. And so you have to be very collaborative in order to kind of put together a group. And so we're spread out all across the U.S. So we're a multi-site um, rehab engineering research center. It's based out of Penn State University uh, with Dr. Janice Light and David McNaughton. They do a ton of work with kids with developmental disabilities. Really great, interesting work with uh, video VSDs, uh, literacy development for kids who use AAC. So that's sort of their area. And then another partner on the RERC is Melanie Friedokin. She's at Oregon Health and Sciences University, and she has done a lot of work. She's connected really strongly with the brain computer interface community. So she is a long-term clinical researcher in AAC. And I remember being a student and reading her articles and just eating them up because she is she's done such clinically relevant work. And it's great to see her connected with this really more of an engineering community in BCI. And she's bringing that functional clinical piece into it. So she's focused on that area. Then we have an engineering partner, Tom Jacobs, he's got a company, and Eric Jacobs, they have a company called Invotech. They're based out of Alma, Arkansas, and I've done work with them over the years. They've been my engineering partner on many projects, and I've been their clinical partner, and they've sort of uh, supported the the, um, the, re- the engineering development work for the RERC. And then there's us at Madonna, which is I'm part of it, and then I'm. I also partner with Dr. David Buchelman. In his retirement, he does uh, research with me over at the hospital, and he's our collaborative partner. And we tend to focus more on access issues with adults. Um, we're doing a number of development projects in that area, and then we're also looking at. We do a lot of work with. Um, visual cognitive processing of interfaces. So we're using eye eye tracking technology, but we're using the 
research um, tools that maybe a, a commercial company might use to evaluate the effectiveness of their ads. They often use eye tracking technology to see where consumers are looking. So Mm -hmm. our research community has leveraged that technology and we're looking at how people look at AAC displays and what Mm -hmm. draws their attention and what is cognitively more intuitive for them. Um, That's been, they've had a lot of really great results out of Penn State and developing really um, useful uh, displays for children very, very early to help them develop language. And so they've kind of used the data from these eye tracking studies to develop the display. So we're, we're involved on the adult end of that as well. So that's really cool. It's, I love that because usually I feel like it's like, somehow these organizations find a way to like commercialize things. And then it's like the flip of that, like you're taking what, you know, the commercial sector is doing and making it relevant. Um, Yeah to connect patients with communication. Right. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's awesome. So I know that you asked a little bit about case studies and I took us off down another path <laughs> before I got into that um, because I was going to talk a little more specifically since our talk is focused a bit more on access, what we've been doing in that area. Um, with the RERC group, we're doing a lot of work in what we call we haven't actually landed on a really good term that we like to describe this work. We started calling it multimodal access, but we've kind of switched it to multi-input access. And so what we're trying to look at and what we're examining is what happens when you combine access methods. So as I was talking earlier, I was telling you about switch scanning and eye tracking, for example. So those are two commonly used Um, input methods or access methods. Our field really conceptualizes access um, as a single mode. And so we're looking, but the reality is people can often do multiple things. They're a little better at one thing than another. So we know what happens if you start to combine or use these things together, use these access input methods together. So we started with two really common access methods, scanning switch scanning and eye tracking and uh, we've developed with Invotech's help they've developed a prototype that combines the two and um, I'll describe it a little bit and I'll point you to a video that's on the RERC on AAC website that shows it and it makes a little more sense but what this interface or what this prototype does it uses your eyes to say you have a keyboard in front of you an on-screen keyboard it uses the eye tracking to identify um to highlight a group of letters where you're looking. So say you want on an ABC layout, you want the letter B. You look at the letter B and it highlights the, the letter B and all the letters around it. So then once the letter that you want is in that highlighted group, you would maybe if you had to have some hand movement, you would hit a switch and it would start then scanning each letter within that group until you get to your target once you get your target, you hit your switch again and you make your selection. So you're using eye tracking to narrow the set that you have to scan. But because um, you're using scanning, you don't have to be really good and precise with your eye tracking. Because that's one problem that we see, especially early in recovery. We see patients, and this is where I'll get into a case illustration. So I'm thinking of about a gal that we just collected data on who, when she came here, she uh, had a really severe brainstem stroke. And her ocular motor control was very poor. And she could 
do switch scanning, but it was so fatiguing. She had so much to say. And imagine having to hit this little button to spell out letter by letter sentences. Just very time consuming and very fatiguing. We tried eye tracking with her, but she was about 50% accurate, maybe at best, um, because her eye movement control, her eye motor control just was really poor. So we had tried her on this multimodal strategy and she was great because she didn't have to be spot on. The resolution of her eye tracking didn't have to be so precise. She could just get to the general area, the keyboard where her target letter was, and then she could just quickly scan to that letter. So she was able to communicate very well that way early in recovery, which was great because we were able to start to um, give her experiences because we thought probably long term she's going to be an eye tracker. She's going to need that technology, but she was able to start it really early and learn how to use it. And then as she, her eye motor control got better, we could kind of phase out some of the multimodal and focus more on the single modality. And then she could start using eye tracking independently. So it was interesting in that we were able to combine modalities as sort of like a training tool and to start you using technology earlier, which in, you know, 10 years ago, we probably would have just gave up on eye tracking and thought, well, maybe in six to eight months, try it again. Um, she'd just be stuck with switch scanning, which would have been slow and laborious for her, and she didn't really have the physical tolerance for it. So she would have been stuck with low-tech communication, which she had to depend on others. But this allowed her a more independent way to communicate early in recovery. So I think the idea of combining these things in a really interesting way um, may help people earlier and allow us to do things that we weren't able to do before. Yeah, that's awesome. And so you get to go in to see patients at Madonna since that's that's yeah. where you work, that's where you're located, and collaborate with the SLPs there yeah. and, and problem solving and getting creative with solutions yeah. to get people like without having to wait for a certain skill to resolve or improve. Um, you can just kind of get in there and get started with them. Absolutely. Um, I'm really fortunate in that our therapist CAAC is a part of what they do. Um, some people are more expert than others, but they see it as a tool that we integrate in therapy. And I'm always available to come and consult on the tough cases. And I love doing that and help. And that's how we get a lot of our ideas is to act. If I, if I didn't have that, you know, day-to-day experience, I think I just wouldn't have the ideas because I get to see where the problems are and just help brainstorm solutions. Hey, did you know that you can earn CEUs on a cruise? The 2020 Conference at Sea with SpeechTherapyPD.com is from July 10th to July 17th, 2020. You can earn 12 hours of continuing education while enjoying the scenic views of the Alaskan coast. If you register for the cruise before September 30th, 2019, you will receive a special free six-month SLP Now subscription and a one-year premium, they call it professional subscription, to SpeechTherapyPD.com when you pay for the cruise CEU portion. So it's all included. It's amazing. You're getting 12 CEUs at sea. You're going on a cruise. You're getting access to an entire year of amazing pod courses and video courses and six months of the SLP Now subscription. So it's like tons of amazing stuff, you guys. Um, The Royal Caribbean's Radiance of the Seas sails around trip from Vancouver, BC on July 10th, 2020 for the seven-day trip that stops in six awe-inspiring Canadian and Alaskan 
Alaskan locations before returning to port on July 17th. So join me, Michelle, and Marisha, my other podcast hosts, as we balance excellent CEU opportunities with some sweet vacay time on a very large boat. Be sure to visit speechtherapypd.com slash cruise to learn more and sign up. I'll see you there. Awesome. That's really great. All right. Um, Do you, at this point, do you want to talk a little bit about like a failure and like what that looks like? And then basically how you turn a failure into a success. <laughs> I, yeah, actually, I have a good example of that. I was thinking about this guy on my drive into work this morning. And it's not really a failure, but kind of. It, see, it felt like it was going to be early on. And then we did something which I think is kind of unusual, and it's turned it into more of a success. So this is a gentleman who had really severe um, encephalitis, came to us and just... I was just hearing through the grapevine about this patient. Um, I work with an occupational therapist who's just phenomenal and really great with access. And she was helping the speech pathologist with this guy and they were just stumped. They've tried, they tried everything. And he was just so, so weak, um, so inconsistent. Um, They just couldn't get a good solid access method. He was even kind of inconsistent with his low tech communication. So the gentleman was just medically fragile, very ill and very weak. So they'd worked on things for a while. I was hearing about it and um, they were kind of landing on switch access as the best maybe possible option, but it wasn't functional for him for communication. But I did hear that he was doing eye tracking in a low tech way um, pretty well and getting better with it. So I had talked to the as the speech pathologist and I said, you want to try eye tracking again? And she said, oh, he just can't, he can't do that. He can't sustain his attention. He can't, once you, when you're using eye, eye tracking, you have two ways to make your selection. One is either dwell. So you look at the target for like a second and then it makes the, it selects it. Or if you have another physical movement, you could plug a switch in and you look at your target and you hit your switch and that makes a selection. So he couldn't make selections at all. He just couldn't do dwell and he couldn't do switch selection yet. And so I said, but he, but she said he can look at targets. I said, well, let's use the eye tracker as a low tech board. So we just put all his low tech stuff on the eye tracker. He looked right to every target you would ask him to. And then you would just ask them maybe, um, I always try to not only ask a person, you know, look at the, you know, word for bathroom, look at the symbol for food or what discomfort, whatever. Um, I also ask them if you're, if you're in a lot of pain, how would you tell me? And then mm-hmm. you know, just try to make sure they, they can use it functionally. Mm-hmm. And he could do that. He was really good. So I said, right now, let's just use it as a partner. The partner interprets the active, you know, what the activation is the partner does the activation, but let's let him point to the target. And he was, he got really, really good at that. And then while we were doing that, and he was using that as his communication board, I had the OT work. He was getting a little bit of thumb movement. I had them work really hard on coupling, looking at something with with activating a switch. So he couldn't quite do those at the same time, but they worked really hard on getting him to, because first he had to look at his thumb to make it move, get him to be able to look at something else and still move his thumb at the same time. Eventually we were able to put those two things together and then he could access his AAC device. 
but we, you know, early on we, because he was so poor at doing that, we would have never even gone down that road. He probably would have been stuck using low tech for who knows how long, but we were able to use low, t- uh, high tech in a low tech way and then eventually move him to where he could control it like you would traditionally with a high tech in a high tech system in a high tech way. So kind of someone who we thought was going to be a failure, but we're really amazed that he's been able to move forward. And now he can use the device by himself without the partner interpreting what he's looking at. He can look at his target and hit a switch. He can tell you right away, he can speak the message out loud. And so now they're working on um, getting him to spell with the eye tracker and they divided the alphabet board into large targets. And so he goes to the group that has the letter he wants and then he selects his letter and then he goes back and finds the other group and selects his letter. Um, so it's amazing from where he where he came to where he is right now. This is a long process. I think that sometimes we get frustrated pretty early on or we don't have access to people for that long. Mm-hmm. And so we don't get to help them through this really agonizingly slow process. But I really, I really like that process and I and the the clinicians I work with appreciate it. And if you keep plugging away, you can put things together and then you can make a real impact for people. And that's kind of how it kind of gets back to sort of how we conceptualize AAC with this really severe population. We look at what they can do and how we can, how we, where we think they might go with it. And then what steps does it take to get them there instead of just saying, oh, they can't do this. So let's try something else. Oh, they can't do this. So let's try something else. That's that's kind of the way they approached him originally. They kept trying every possible access method under the sun and nothing worked for him. So clearly we had to look at him differently, see what were what were our best bets for access and then help him get there to where he could get independent. Yeah, I think that was a great illustration about how it's always evolving. Yeah. And they you will build on skills and then those skills will grow and then they can get greater and greater access and greater and greater independence with using those methods. Yes. And yes. the beginning sounds like the beginning stages um, for the, the patient to use it. It is a it might take them a long time and they might become frustrated with how long it takes them to get a message across, but the more they use it and the more their skills improve and then you can figure out other access methods. It sounds like then the timing becomes a lot faster. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. And it takes the whole team to do it too. That's another thing I want to point out. Um, It's hard for a speech pathologist in the 30 minutes we get per session with a person once or twice a day to accomplish these goals. And so we really engage the whole rehab team. So the OT is really instrumental in that. Um, What's great about OTs is they've got all this great insight into tone and muscle activation and sort of how you can use access tools in more of a therapeutic way so they can integrate that into their therapy and you can even look to your PTs they're often looking at a way for this person to control a wheelchair Mm -hmm. so maybe those maybe those access methods align and so then they can hit that and start practicing so if you work together as a team that person can get practice on it all day long awesome excellent okay all right so um well, I guess you've kind of hit this one already. Um, we were going to talk about like um, some intervention for severe cases, but it sounds like you just gave a really good <laughs> illustration on that. So thank you. Um, and you know what? I feel like we've hit on this too. How you conceptualize AAC early in rehab. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Would you say... Um, 
the SLPs that you collaborate with, um, do they kind of start out with like low tech and build up to high tech? Yeah. Do they kind of get those foundational skills and then yeah. grow with them? Or are they just like, here's a device, let's get jumping? Like, what's, I, I'm really what would glad you say you, a standard is? I'm really glad you brought that up. Um, you know, every case is different, but I think across the board, and I'm, I'm speaking more about adults um, that we're seeing, that we see with neurologic disorders, low tech is usually almost always um, the very first thing we do. We might also be doing high tech right away, closely behind it or simultaneously, but low tech, if, if you don't have that established, um, you usually have pretty poor communication outcomes because we're in a medical environment and there's lots of doctors and nurses that interface with this patient. Often we might be doing a high-tech AAC strategy that just, if you don't have a lot of expertise in how to set it up for a person, it's not going to work. And it's probably not practical to expect the float CNA to <laughs> quickly learn how to set up an eye tracking system for a patient so they can communicate with them. So we always push that low tech is important. And the number one thing that I think all SLPs push and I always reiterate is that yes, no response, that really consistent way for a person to signal yes and no, make sure everybody knows what it is and make sure nobody's trying 50 different ways for a person to communicate yes and no. It's like, no, we're landing on two ways. We're, we're not going to ask this guy to look up and down and then nod his head and do multiple eye blinks. Let's find two consistent ways and have everybody go with that. And then we often do a lot of um, patient provider type communication boards so that the patient can engage a bit more in their care and that they can communicate what their basic needs are. That's always really fundamental in this environment and we really push starting with that. And then later on exploring what might be some technology options. I think another thing, another point there I wanted to, to say is I think a lot of SLPs get a bit um, just intimidated with the technology or if they haven't touched a device in the year, in a year, they're like, well, I don't know what the latest device, the technology is now, so I don't know if I can do this. The reality is technology changes um, every couple years. And so what you've used last year is probably obsolete now. And so it's best not to worry about the actual technology, but what are the, the fundamentals that, that still exist? So can the person eye, eye gaze? Well, then some sort of eye tracker is probably going to maybe work for them. Or do they have some sort of physical movement? Then some sort of switch might work for them. Um, you don't even have to have the latest and greatest device to, to connect to a switch so they can communicate. I mean, I just, I think people shouldn't be intimidated by the technology or think that they have to have the latest and the greatest or else they can't do AAC. I think you can do a lot of what I, we call feature matching um, figuring out what their accessibilities are, and then understanding um, are they able to spell or do they need full messages or what sort of interface or software do they need, and then go from there. And there's lots of solutions for any one person. There usually isn't the holy grail of devices that only works for this one person. Often you can find several different tools that'll work. So I always try to encourage people not to drive their evaluations by the technology, but instead look at the person and what can they do, and then you can 
I always ask the SLP if they're if they are consulting with me. I often want to just go up and observe the person with no technology. I just want to see what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Then that helps me understand. Okay, well maybe this device or maybe that or whatever. I don't first just come in with the device and try it. Um, so I think, and I think SLPs need to give themselves credit. They know a lot more than they realize because it, it boils down to communication. Very fundamental things. Um, they have a lot of knowledge. They can they can really drive that evaluation, just get a little help on the technology end, but really um, they need to um, understand they actually do know AAC, (laughs) even if they are not familiar with the latest devices. Um, At Madonna, do you guys have just like a couple of the devices that you sort of use to trial with patients and then they go through the process of getting their own? Or do you have like reps that come in and trial out devices and then work with the patient through that way? Like, what what might that look like? Sure. I know a lot of places have different models. I think ours is a little bit unique because we've been doing AAC and kind of known for doing AAC for a long time. So we have a really fully stocked lab. Um, We have all sorts of eye tracking devices, communication devices, uh, switch devices, and we have pretty much every switch under the sun you could think about. So we have, we're have we fortunate in that we have a lot of it. A lot of it Madonna has invested in over the years, but I've also, um, we've developed really good relationships with our local vendors. So Toby Dynavox, Talk to Me Technologies, PRC Saltillo, those types of companies. And we, we work with them very closely. So if we don't have a device that we think looks interesting, usually we can call up the company or talk to the local rep and they could bring it in and, and a, do a short-term loan to our organization so we can try it with a patient. Um, we also get a lot, of, because we do so many evals, we get patients and families that will donate devices back to us. So we have loaner devices for people too. They're a little bit older, um, but we use those as well. Um, so we're, we're a little unique in that we're, we're very fortunate that we, we have a lot of technology at our hands. And, um, but I, I would encourage people who maybe if you don't have, um, the in-house capability to purchase devices, developing those relationships with your local vendors, having them, they're more than happy to come and bring you lunch and show you all their devices. And our, um, our vendors are great in that sometimes I'll call on them. I'll be really ready to do an eval. I want them to bring a device that I maybe I haven't, I don't have in house, um, and they'll bring it, and then they just kind of sit sit aside, sit on the side, and watch our process. And I just ask them questions if I need some technical help with the device. But I I do the evaluation myself. But they're they're they are there to support us technically if there's something some feature we don't understand or something we don't know how to program in the device. So that's kind of how we manage our, our evaluations here and our technology here. Awesome. Excellent. Okay. Um, so to get towards wrapping up then, um, can you tell me about a clinician um, or researcher that's impacted your practice? Yes. <laughs> Actually, I have two. <laughs> um, one is um, she. I, I just uh, read her stuff. She was a clinician. Her name is Delva Culp out of Texas, and she wrote this book. Um, chapter on locked-in syndrome in a book that was called AAC in the Medical Setting. And since then, that book, it's really old. I don't think you can still get it. You might be able to get on Amazon. But I, w- I loved that book. And so when I was a new clinician, I bought it. And um, my colleagues, we were of the same graduating class. We just said it was our Bible. We 
it was so good. It was so functional. And she wrote this really great tool that talked about how to deal with people with locked in syndrome early in recovery. And she had all these great examples and data collection methods and, and how you know when to transition them into partner dependent scanning, you know, when they're able to do those kinds of things. It's just one of the best um, clinical chapters I'd ever read. And I used it just a ton. And then as I started to do research, um, Dave Buchelman and Kathy Yorkston were going to kind of redo the version of that book since it was no longer available. And I got to work with Delva Culp on that chapter. <laughs> I felt like, I know I'm, I'm such a nerd, but I, I would just felt so honored, you know, <laughs> yes. working with. and I told the, the gals that I graduated school with, I'm like, I'm writing a chapter with Delva Culp. And they were like, oh my God. <laughs> So she was just phenomenal um, and just a really good uh, clinical research person. And I think she contributed a ton to the field. And I definitely got a lot out of her work. And then the other person I'd just like to acknowledge is the person that I work with day to day is Dr. David Buchelman. I mean, he really um, was just one of the pioneers in the field of AAC. And I'm so fortunate to have just this involvement I've had with him at Madonna and doing research, which I thought I would never in a million years want to do, but he, um, he kind of set the stage for that. And he is, um, he's just been a great mentor. He still, um, loves the clinical work. Um, just kind of set that model of building up these collaborative relationships with the clinicians. Um, still he is the person instilled in me the importance of, staying connected with the clinical population so that your research is relevant and that you have good questions and you can, preach, girl, preach. Yeah, and you can impact and yeah. you know otherwise I wouldn't really want to do this work if I felt like it wasn't going to make an impact so yeah so I appreciate him as well great and then tell me what are some of the best things about being a clinical researcher well there are a lot of good things. I, I just feel every day I thank my lucky stars I had the opportunity to do this. Um, one is to be able to do something that will make a, hopefully in the field, a, an impact, not just with the patients I'm working with down the hallway, but hopefully patients all across the U.S. and the world. You know, being able to just put forth a little bit of information to support development of new technology that might improve people's lives. I mean, it's just really exciting to be a part of that. Mm -hmm. But then also back to, you know, I, I do, as a researcher, I do have to spend a lot of time analyzing data, writing papers, and writing grants, which is not my favorite <laughs> part of what I do. <laughs> but it, it's interesting in some way. But the fact that I also get to offset that with involvement with clinicians and involvements with patients and families makes this job perfect. So it's just a perfect combination of all of these things. And everything I do is connected and related. And um, it's just great I, being able to do that. So I feel really fortunate. Yeah, I do. I That kind of combination where it's like you're just not strictly a researcher and then not strictly a clinician. It's yeah. like you get to bridge both worlds and you get to make that loop where what you're researching and what you're studying is directly tying back into what you're seeing yeah in the field. Right. And that's what makes the data analysis, paper writing and grant writing tolerable because it's about something that's so interesting and that I've seen an impact or I'm really excited because if we can get this funding, we get to do this and it would be really cool. And so that's probably why I like it. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. I like that balance between the two. Yeah. Because, yeah, 
I feel like not every job is perfect and there's always going to be something that's not as fun. And, you know, for you, it's like the grant writing and the paperwork <laughs> and, and having that balance of seeing the work that you do be directly beneficial to our patients. That's got to be super rewarding too. The only thing that's been a little bit different about being a researcher that I had to get used to is research is a slow moving machine and that can be frustrating because as clinicians, we want something that we can use tomorrow. <laughs> we want this yeah. to happen. And sometimes to do research and to do it well, you, you understand what you're trying to do and the, the end goal, but you realize it might take many years to get there. Um, and so you have to sort of peel the onion of a research question and, and start at a level that's doable where you can actually mm -hmm. collect some data and then build upon that and do that over time technology development is the same way. We go through multiple prototypes. We're tweaking the technology. And then once you get it to a, way, a, a, a position where it works really well, then you've got to find a corporate partner, someone who's going to actually make it or incorporate it into their device. It's a long process. So you have to kind of tolerate that and be able to, you know, have a long-term vision of what this can do. So you you understand why it's important to continue to work on it day to day, even though you're not going to see the result in a month or necessarily a year from now. So mm -hmm. that's a little bit different. And it was a little bit of shift, a shift for me going from being a clinician to a researcher. Yeah. Thank you for like illustrating that point. That is really important because I know for me personally, like I, I really benefit from seeing the fruits of my labor. That's what, you know, keeps me going and keeps me energized. And as a researcher, that might not come to fruition for a very long time. Yeah. If you, if you need immediate gratification, that may not be the field for you. <laughs> you definitely have to be patient and to be able to see the long term. But you know what I think? I think in my job, because I get to then also do a little bit on the side, you know, the more the clinical work where I get to see some more immediate application or it, I, I get a little bit of that immediacy, a little bit of that in my world. And so mm -hmm. I probably feed that part of that need that I probably still have mm -hmm. <laughs> allows me to tolerate the longer term stuff. Yeah, yeah, that balance between having a foot in both worlds, then you do get kind of that, as you said, that immediacy, that reward right there while you're in this long process yeah. of the research and it will just feed off of each other. Yep. That's good. Yeah. Um, I haven't really spoken with a whole lot of other researchers, but I hope that they have a system very similar to this, that they get to have a foot in both worlds and they get to kind of test out some of their research to see how it's working without having to go through like the whole, because it is, like you said, it's a very long process, but if you're not dipping back into that clinical world, like you might lose sight or become a little isolated like that. So. Yeah, I think so. And I, I think the people we work with, it's so important that you stay connected to them. Um, you know, their needs change and technology changes and medical models changes and healthcare changes. I mean, we just, you have to be cognizant of all of those things and have experience with it, I think, in order to really make a difference. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's key. All right, well, for our last question, um, let's go with our parting thoughts or your words of inspiration for our listeners. What do you have for me? I'm ready, I'm excited. <laughs> Well, and, you know, I might be repeating myself a little bit, but words of inspiration. I mean, I, I really think any SLP that's listening to this podcast, you should feel empowered that you can do AAC. You really have the fundamental skills. Um, you really understand communication and you understand your patients really well. 
And there are tools at your disposal. If you don't have the technology piece, you can get it. They're, the vendors are very helpful. You can find colleagues that have some of the knowledge. I partner with the OTs a lot. Um, just being open, open to collaborating, you can get the technology in the hands and you can get someone helping you with it. But really, you're the person everybody looks to. You know, what does this person understand? What can they do? What are their cognitive abilities? What are their language abilities? You can have the OT help you kind of parse out some of the physical abilities and you could do all, all of those things. Um, so I think fundamentally, we forget we have that. We just think AAC is just high tech and it has to go to an expert and you can't do it unless it's sent to an expert. But that's not always the case. And I think there's, everybody has a role in at least initiating and starting the process. Yeah, maybe if you're looking at doing a long-term evaluation where it needs to be funded through insurance and you don't have any background and you know someone who can help with that, you may refer on. But I, I think every SLP has the ability to start that process early, start the engagement with technology, looking at alternative ways of communicating for patients. Um, We all have that skill set really in us. Yeah. And the website that you mentioned earlier, R-E-R-C on AAC, um, has videos to help with that. Yes, it does. This is a really great, um, so part of our R-E-R-C on AAC, one of Nidler's big missions with these R-E-R-Cs is is dissemination and training. And so all of our, uh, we have videos, we um, post our posters, any um, open access publications we post there. And I, this RERC on AAC, it's actually been funded for multiple rounds. It's kind of been an operation for the past maybe 15 or so years, or 20 maybe. There's been several iterations. So they've linked back to the previous one. So on some of the previous ones, we, we did videos. Like I did a video on locked-in syndrome and minimal movement with David Buchelman. Um, there's videos on kids and literacy in AAC. So there's a ton of really great um, educational resources. So if you're interested, definitely you can start with going to just Google RERC on AAC. And I, I know I sent you the link as well, Leanne. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and we'll so have that, that up in the show notes. Yeah, it takes, you, it takes you to the current um, site and then you can delve, delve into it, look at the projects and there's just a ton of resources and information in there. Great. Awesome. Yeah, that's my favorite thing is connecting people with resources. And that looks like an excellent resource. So thank you so much. Yeah, you bet. That was quite an enlightening talk that I had with Susan. Um, She's so comfortable with this information and sharing it and guiding a novice like me through her very intricate work. Um, It was so enjoyable. Thanks again, Susan, for guiding me through that. Next week, we're going to be having Sarah Barr back on the podcast. You'll remember her from her two amazing talks in season one. And she's coming back on to talk about assessing functional needs in the adult neurogenic population. It's a, of course, it's a fantastic episode with amazing resources and the show notes will be on speechuncensored.com. I want to give a quick shout out to SUP listeners in the following locations. Uh, I pitched the first city in the first five countries uh, listed. So they are London, England, Auckland, New Zealand, Toronto, Canada, Los Angeles in the US and Sydney, Australia. Thank you so much for joining me and taking the time to listen. In other news, 
Speech Uncensored is now available for CEU credit through SpeechTherapyPD.com. I have a promo code, so if you're interested in making this a regular thing and just feeding your brain with all these amazing, knowledgeable guest speakers on the podcast, then you can have a year subscription for 79 bucks when you use my promo code SUP at SpeechTherapyPD.com. All right, you guys, I want you to get out there and nourish your brain so that your practice can flourish. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next week.